to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. On this episode, Andrew and I will be interviewing Amber Kim, who is formerly known as Brian Kim. And if that's confusing for anybody, that's because Amber is a transgender woman who is in the male prison system. So it's a very interesting interview from that standpoint alone. Um, I'm sure people are wondering why Amber is in prison. When Amber was 18 years old in December of 2006, she stabbed her father, Richard Kim, to death and strangled her mother, Teresa Kim, by ligature strangulation in Spokane, Washington. In 2008, Amber was sentenced to two life without parole sentences, uh, plus two years for weapon enhancement. And there was also a small sentence because she stole $1,000 from her father's bank account. After the interview, we're going to be joined by our friend, Dr. Shiloh from the LA Not So Confidential podcast. If you have not listened to LA Not So Confidential, go check it out. It's one of my favorite shows. We're affiliated with them through the Crossbase Media Network. But even if we weren't, it's still a really awesome podcast and seriously one of my favorites. So go check out LA Not So Confidential. Here's our interview and then our analysis of the interview with Dr. Shiloh of LA Not So Confidential. Okay, call from... An inmate at Monroe Correctional Complex. This call will be recorded and heard. Thank you. Can we start talking about your childhood and what it was like growing up? Uh, yeah. First house I lived in as a growing up was in Creature, Idaho. Uh, I was born with the name Brian Kim. It's a, it was a very conservative Christian family. I spent a lot of time in the woods, particularly. And that was really like my first love was the forest. And that's where, you know, that was my happy place and all, all of that. Really, my memories don't start solidly. I have fragments here and there previous to this. But my memories really started when I was about six years old uh, with the death of my grandmother. Um, she died in a car accident. And, you know, this being a very traumatic event, it very much so jolted me into reality, you know, from, you know, that happy, floating childhood, everything just kind of flows into one state to the next into that, you know, linear time of memory and recall and all of that. And that, I would say, has definitely been a very large influence on me because that very much still made me look at my own mortality. And I, that kind of defines my childhood in a way, is this introspection paired with this imposition of Christianity, which Christianity is a great religion for other people. And then the not knowing what I am. That's kind of how I would sum up those early years of my childhood. Was there any abuse, physical, mental, sexual, anything like that growing up? Yes. Um, There was a lot of psychological abuse. Um, You know, getting back to that conservative Christian strain, my parents believed that it was, you know, God gave it permission to beat me because that would instill good values in me. Like that's, that's my understanding of it even, even to this day. That's why they believed it was okay to whip me. And, you know, I, just, I still bear the scars from that, like physical and psychologically. I don't resent them. I just, I recognize the ways that the harms they caused me has shaped me because... So this is a, it's a hard to talk about thing, but it's very emblematic of what happens, like like to me as a child. 
I did not want to go to church. You know, I was, especially, like I said, after my grandmother's death, I was very, very, very angry with God. And I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to worship, you know, this deity that took my grandmother from me. And so, you know, I refused to get out of bed. I refused to get dressed. Of course, I was whipped at that point um, with a leather belt, and they dragged me to church. Well, once we got to church, well, on the way to church, they realized that I had not brushed my teeth that morning. So they stopped at a gas station and bought toothbrush and toothpaste. And I got dragged into the church bathroom, and um, they forcibly held me down and brushed my teeth. Like, my father was holding my arms down, and uh, my mother, you know, grabbed onto my head very forcibly and shoved the toothbrush in my mouth and brushed my teeth for me on the floor of the bathroom of the church. And it was 100% about power and control. And... That's not okay. I mean, that technically fits the definition of rape. So that then makes it complex for me to say, was I sexually abused? It is. Where do you classify that experience? Was that simply physical abuse and domination? Or was that a sexual assault due to, you know, penetration of my mouth or with a toothbrush? I, I still, to this day, don't know how to classify that experience. But that level of forcible conformity was emblematic of what was happening to me as a child. So it's like, I don't resent them having done that because they believed they were acting in my best interest in order to help me grow up to be a good, healthy person. But I was harmed by it. During this time, there's things that are going on in your life, like the example you just gave us, which is, which you perceive to be traumatic events. Throughout this time, was there any confusion at this point in your life about your own gender or sexuality or both even? That really started coming home to me around third grade, uh, especially since it was third grade that we moved from Priest River, Idaho to Spokane, Washington. Um, and up to this point, I was very socially awkward. I definitely didn't fit in with the boys. I would have preferred to play with girls. But I went to a private Christian school, and so, of course, that would not be allowed. But I didn't have understanding or comprehension to even understand my own gendered feelings. That, that didn't occur until I got to Spokane, and I realized, oh, it's, I feel like I should be socially with the girls doing feminine activities. And that was really the first feelings of gender dysphoria for me, because I shouldn't be playing with the boys, I should be playing with the girls, I should be hanging out with the girls. What kind of feelings and things did that bring up to you? Was that, was that very tormenting for you around this time? How did you feel about that? I, I felt isolated. I felt that I couldn't have a friend. Like, that's actually kind of a refrain for me throughout my life, is that I feel that I cannot have a friend for this reason or that reason due to whatever life situation is occurring at the time. And at that point, I felt like I wasn't allowed to have a friend because I didn't know how to make friends with boys, and I wasn't able to hang out with the girls enough in order to become friends with them, really. So that, that made me feel very isolated and alone. 
and unable to really form a true connection with my peers. Did anybody know of this at the time? Uh, I don't think my friends were. I don't think my teachers were. But within our family, I think there was an idea of this, even if it wasn't articulated to that degree. Because any talking too feminine, they would say, oh, it's Brianna Patricia Camigan, which is, you know, a feminization of the name that I was given at birth. And so that was then their form of gender policing. So, you know, while I'm not a mind reader, I can't know what they thought, but they definitely reinforce a masculinity on my behavior. Going further now, now that we kind of have an idea that the construct of your crime being uh, perceived trauma or as, as you um, describe it as abuse, and then we have the gender confusion, I should say, at this time. Is it, would that be accurate? Yes. And feeling like there's nowhere to turn, isolating yourself. I mean, this is all a recipe for something bad. So going forward, can you go to the events that directly preceded your crime into the day of your crime and walk us through it? We'll start with context of... Um we moved a third time. And, uh, this this move occurred when I was in my eighth grade summer, going into ninth grade. So I actually changed from instead of going to Mead High School to Mount Spokane High School. And you know, again, like I said, that isolated feeling. So what few friendships I had were cut off by that move, which then further isolated me. And we moved up to Mount Spokane, and. That was a very toxic environment in our home at that time. Like I said, at this point in my life, um, myself and my parents had a very toxic relationship. My temper was very, very bad. Um, their his imposition of control was very, very strong. And from that, there was a lot of conflict. You know, both of us were causing harm to each other just because we couldn't understand each other's position. Uh, by this time, I had uh, learned, you know, what transsexual was by reading the encyclopedia of all things. I had started with the letter A, read through the letter T, learned what I was, and learned why I need to hide who I am. Um, I had then become very much more alienated from the Christian church, which my parents were very strong believers in, which was another point of contention between us. Um, and fast forwarding to my senior year of high school, I turned 18 and I was trying to move out of the house. Um, I repeatedly tried to get an apartment. At one point, I even bought a uh, travel trailer. We're going to try and move out into this travel tra trailer in a trailer park. And that also did not work. And I had mental health issues. Um, I had actually been in the, the mental health, the... Uh, Mental Health Ward, the Sacred Heart Children's Ward during middle school on a couple of occasions. What was, what was, what was the basis of going there? Uh, the basis of going there was the, the conflict that I've described so far with my parents. There was a couple of instances where our arguments and our yelling uh, and screaming, like I would throw objects, and um, then my parents would call the police and say, um, we're scared of our own child. And 
then the police would come, arrest me, and spend like the weekend in juvenile detention. Um, on one of these cases, the I actually locked myself in the bathroom for like six hours and just screamed for hours, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. And uh, when the police came and extracted me from the bathroom, like broke down the door, pepper sprayed me, handcuffed me, took me off to juvenile detention. And the judge at this point said um, that I could either be admitted to a mental health facility, you know, by order of the state, or released to my parents, given the condition that I would be entered into a mental health facility by the end of the week. And so my parents chose the second option, and that's why I was put in the psych ward. Uh, like I said, I was already at that point, I was very damaged and very angry and very isolated. Before the murder of your parents, there is a, uh, a history of um, assaultive behavior between you and your parents um, as documented by the Spokane police as well as your sister. W would you say that that's accurate? Oh, um Assaultive, yes. yes. I would definitely say that that would be accurate going in both directions. There's there's a history of mental health issues. All, all this is going on. It's uh, mm -hmm. clearly a very, um, I, I, would it be accurate to say a tense point in your life? I would say from fifth grade forward has been a tense point in my life. Like, I have not... I have not had a point in my life where there is not a large measure of stress and things to, to deal with of that nature. And as a child, I simply did not have the tools to deal with that. Were you on any medications at this time for your mental health issues? I was. I was on Wellbutrin um, and Zyprexa at that point in my life. So I believe you were still in uh, high school when the murders occurred, is that correct? Correct. Okay, so now that the stage is set and we have a really good idea of uh, of your life beforehand, um, I, I know it's probably difficult, but let's uh, let's go into the, the day of the murders itself and, and what transpired. Okay. Um, all right. So the day of, went to school, you know, as normal, uh, came back home to uh, Mount Spokane, because that's where our house was. It was just past the 13th mile marker going up to the park was our driveway. And you know, I drove up the way, and I, oh, it actually is important for me to mention at this point that these are all memories that I recovered about four or five years ago. So at the time of trial, I had no memory of any of this. Um, I had no memory of this whole 24-hour period, actually. But I, so I you know, came home, and uh, I had a phone conversation uh, with my mother, and uh, she informed me that the apartment that I was trying to get, that I would not be able to get, that uh, she had blocked me from being able to move out to this apartment, uh, but that was okay, apparently, because
because uh, she had some friend at work and that uh, she would approve of me moving out into this person's home. And because I had previously repeatedly tried to move out of the house, this was, for lack of a better term, the straw that broke the camel's back. And from this point forward, I was not sane. I did not have a rational decision-making process. Um, and all of my memories from this point forward are very, very hard to, like, actually recall them. Like, they're very hazy and fuzzy and choppy, right? I spent, like, a lot of effort um, trying to break into my father's gun safe. And I honestly really don't know why. The power went out while I was doing that, so I was unable to use power tools and I had to resort to hand tools. Then, after like an hour after that, I remember my father uh, coming home and, and I got into an argument with him. I mean, all the way from the garage, up the stairs, down the hallway, up to the closet where he was hanging up his jacket. And I remember him like saying some things that, 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 that very much so felt like a threat. Like, I honestly can't truly remember his actual words, but I just, I was hit by them of, do as I'm told or die. And at that point, I just came completely, yeah, yeah. It sounds like the argument yeah. was very, very intense. It was, it, yes, because, yeah. And I, I've, I've said this many times before, and I'm probably going to be saying this for the rest of my life, but I should have just packed a bag, got in my car, and disappeared, like, months before this. Like, that was the choice I didn't make. And I'm going to regret that for the rest of my life. And because of that, I killed my father. And because of that, like, my mother came home shortly after that, and then I killed my mother. And because of that, you know, I've wrecked so many lives. Like, particularly, like, I'm just, I'm always struck by ways that I've wrecked my sibling's life. And, you know, and I'm sure it's in so many ways that I can't even articulate because I just... moment for just a little bit longer. The confrontation with your father had escalated and the crime itself was, was um, particularly brutal. I, I know that you you just told us that the memories were repressed and you've only um, fairly recently recalled this, but yeah. in the murder itself, when you were killing your father, how much rage was being expelled? How much rage played a role in this? I... I can't even articulate it in those terms. I was so, I was so far beyond human rationality that I, I can't put that experience into words. I, like, 
literally like that. That's why this is so hard to talk about, and that's why my brain protected me from these memories for so long, and I did not have the capacity to have them in my recollection and still live. And it took a lot of work to get to a place where I was able to recall even some of it. And even that then like re-damaged me. Because again, it was I was so far beyond human conception of even language that like there's no there's no there's no comparison. I can't I can't say rage. I can't I can't. Let me ask a more basic question rather than getting into complex emotions. Were was there so we, we talk to murderers and some say they're either rushed with adrenaline when this is going on or they're either completely blank. Where would you say that you fell while you were committing this murder with within that spectrum? I I don't even know. Um I seriously do not even know. Yeah. Is that because you don't think you've analyzed it enough or acknowledged it I, enough? I don't believe these are terms that even apply. How do you analyze something you can't articulate? How, how do you reintegrate a memory that, as a human being, is so inhuman? I mean, how do you integrate not the experience of seeing the thunderstorm, but being the thunderstorm? You can't. It's not within human conception. It's like that's not something I can do. And I don't think that's something anyone that holds on to their humanity is able to do. So you're saying basically these, these memories are almost feel secondary, secondhand, like this is something that you you saw, but not, not actually something that you were involved in is what you're saying. I mean, that, that might be closer. That, that might be a closer way of describing it, but it just doesn't feel accurate. But I think that's more yeah. the right track. It's more, there's definitely that separation. It's definitely not something that I can feel in my bones. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not something that you can quantify into a feeling. I mean, you can intelligently explain it, explain it, but you can't really seem to actually, when you recall it, actually feel it. It's just like when you talk about it, well, like it's something you saw and not something you lived. That's the, At least that's what how, I, how I'm interpreting this. Hey, I, I don't... And that's where the trouble comes with saying there's that separation because, I mean, it's it's taking all of my skill to keep myself from just sobbing right now, right? Like, I'm actually weeping on the telephone right now because of the emotion. And that's even with all of my skill in practicing Wicca and Buddhism for nine years. And it takes all of that skill to keep myself together because of that feeling of those emotions, but I can't describe them. And there's a separation between the memory and myself, but there's 
you see where language breaks down on this? It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, to, to keep going forward, um, as, as we understand it, the police found the firearm from your father's gun safe in your bedroom, along with the ammunition, I believe, but it wasn't loaded. Yeah. I don't remember putting it there. I have no doubt that I did, simply because of, you know, the logical requirements of the moment, like, like the logical requirement of it. But I have no memory of doing that at all. I remember you trying to break into the gun tape, but I don't remember opening it. And then, like, what really throws me for a loop is... I go through all, like, like, for some reason I went through all that effort to break into the gun safe, and then I used a knife from my own personal knife collection against my father, which would not have required me to get into the gun safe in the first place. You, you don't recall having any memories of what you could have possibly, even potentially, intended to use the gun for None at all. Like, absolutely none at all. I don't even know. Okay. Moving forward, I believe that a credit card was taken from either your mother or father, and there was $1,000 transferred into your bank account. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Um, that's actually the next morning. The next morning... I actually had long since structured my morning routine so that I do not see my, you know, I did not see my parents at all in the mornings because I knew that I had an especially short fuse in the mornings um, and I just wanted to avoid the conflict, which I mean was sort of a smart choice on my point to avoid the conflict, but would have been a smarter choice to learn how to deal with conflict in a healthy way, but I wasn't, again, I wasn't functioning on that level as a teenager. So as I was going about my morning routine making breakfast, I see the wallet sitting on the kitchen counter and um, like a week or two before we had had an argument once again about um, my parents were charging me rent to live in their basement well, blocking my attempts to move out of the house, which to me felt like extortion. And so, you know, early morning, I was a snot-nosed punk of a teenager. I see my parents' wallet, and I'm like, I'll show them, right? So I take the freaking credit card, I know the pin to it, and I take $1,000 out of it from an ATM and go deposit it in the bank at that morning. And, you know, I have no memory of the night before at this point. I woke up that morning, took a shower, got myself some breakfast, go to school. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm, I'm going about my day, and at this point in time, I believe my parents are still alive. Was there nothing in the house, like a blood or anything, or, or a, a, even a body, anything like that to suggest that something um, happened to your parents? Um, for some reason, like, th this is another point that I don't really have memory of all that well, just 
the flash of driving the bobcat. Um, but for some reason, I can't even articulate. Um, I placed my parents' bodies in the bucket of the bobcat and then drove that into the shop via, I guess, storage shed, shop, external structure that was on the property there on Mount Spokane and just left it there. I have no idea why. I only remember driving the Bobcat up the hill for a few seconds at one moment in time, and that's it. it you know, same thing with the gun. I have no idea why I did that. At this point, you have no recollection of killing your parents. You've taken the money. You went to school. Let's, let's I'm ready go to in. have a hunky-dory day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so... What transpires after this? I mean, I, I, it's very obvious that, I mean, your your parents were um, found and you and, were caught. Yeah, so, I mean, at lunch, um, I hear a call over the intercom, uh, you know, Kim to the front office, uh, and I go to the front office, and the resource officer is there and says, hey, we're going to sit down here, here in the... Uh, I can't remember if it was the principal's office or the vice principal's office, but it was one of those. And we sat down, and he said, so we're going to have a little chat. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And he says, I can't tell you. I'm like, okay. So am I under arrest? And he says, no. Then I say, okay, I'm leaving. At which point he put his hands on his gun and says, no, you're not. And I sat down because I didn't feel like him drawing it. <laughs> and so we sit there and we're staring across from each other in very, very awkward silence. And I'm thoroughly confused and kind of terrified at this point. And so I start trying to, you know, I'm trying to, I guess, incite him to conversation. Just to see if, like, he'll tell me something about what's going on without meaning to. And the most that I could get out of him is that my sister's trying to get in touch with me desperately about something. It's like, okay, I need to call her. And he says, I can't let you do that. And I'm like, why not? Um, and he says, I just can't. I'm like, stop me. And I go to pull out my cell phone, and again, his hand goes to his gun, and I'm like, oh, shit. And, you know, while I was kind of a snot-nosed punk at the time, I was also, hell, still am, thoroughly a coward. So, of course, I put my cell phone back away. And we sit there for more time, and I see my car towed away, and I'm like, why are you towing my car? What's going on? Why won't, you know, my sister's trying to get in touch with me. Why, why won't you let me get in touch with her? Is there something going on with my parents? Like, why else would my sister be trying to get in touch with me? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what's up? And he says, you know, sit down. The detectives will be here soon. And I'm like, what detectives? And, of course, he doesn't answer that question either. Then, you know, this is, I don't know, like five or six hours later. Detectives show up, um, they arrest me, um, I get taken down to uh, Spokane County Jail, and 
you know, again, I, I try the same tactic. I try and, you know, incite them to conversation. I try and get them to tell me something by way of conversation. I talk about soccer. I talk about computer programming. I talk about... I can't even remember what else, but I tried like five or six different tactics to get them to tell me anything about what's going on. Because they still haven't read me Miranda right, but I'm in handcuffs, but I'm not under arrest technically yet, but I'm definitely being detained, and so I'm in this weird gray area, right? So we get down to the Spokane County Jail, and they sit me down in a room, and... Um, at that point, I sit there for a while on my own. Then they come in, and I finally learn what's going on. Like, my first actual real piece of information that I get about what's going on is them reading me the charges of second-degree murder of my parents. And, yeah, I, at that point, I... I, I just kind of collapsed, and I was like, you know what, I'm done. What did it take for you to leave me alone now? And so they, we went through this whole routine. They took, you know, the evidence. They, they, you know, did cotton swabs on random locations on my body as they took all of my clothes and put them in paper bags, and I'm just like. I'm just in a fugue state at this point. I'm basically a zombie doing what they're telling me to do. Then they put me on suicide watch in the jail, and yeah, I was on suicide watch for three or four days. Then they put me on the uh, and I'm in the uh, in the hole there, the, the solitary confinement unit there, and yeah, I spent that whole month just crying, like. Because I just didn't understand. Because since then, like, I've come to understand my feelings at that point as being, like, a version of Stockholm Syndrome. Like, what I did, you know, what I did was not, not okay. Like, not okay at all. But, like, at the time, I also, I still, I mean, I still do. I still have a love for my parents. But I also have a damage for my parents. And, you know, it takes me a very long time to, to uh, understand that. And from there, it's just all the court proceedings. Let's see, what's happening next at this point? Um, I'm at my public defender. I honestly cannot remember his name at this point in time in my life. But, uh, I mean, he tried very hard. Uh, I, I, I give him credit for that. I mean, a lot of people talk a lot of shit about their public defenders, but I mean, I, I used to do that a lot myself. And it was only a couple of years ago that I really finally understood, like, the disparity of the position of the public defender's office versus the public prosecutor's office, and really understand, like, the position he was in, and, and finally came to appreciate, like, what he tried to do for me, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, d during that month that I was in IMU, um, the prosecutor was deciding whether or not he would give me the death penalty, and he very seriously considered it, and, uh, the only, the only reason that, uh, 
normally you would have to file paperwork saying, yes, I want death penalty, or no, I'm not going to seek death penalty after they resentenced me to a first-degree aggravated murder, which happened a few days after I was off suicide watch. Now, I'm, I'm getting a little disjointed at this point. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's like the memories themselves aren't in order, if that makes sense. So... Normally, you would have to file paperwork that says either yes, death penalty, no, no death penalty, once the charge of first-degree aggravated murder is, is entered. And rather than doing that, he chose to just let the time expire because he had 30 days to file that paperwork, and he never did. So the deadline expired for pursuing the death penalty rather than him saying, no, I'm not going to seek the death penalty, which was scary, to say the least. Um, I mean, it, it's all of this, like, my life's defined by fear at this point. But, uh, uh I then, you know, spent the next 15 months getting ready for trial. At one point, um, you know, me and my public defender finally realized that we're not going to be offered a plea deal at all. And so we had a conversation about it, and I asked him to see if the uh, prosecutor would consider anything where I don't get sentenced to simply die in prison. I mean, I personally would have liked to, to you know, a sense of 20 years, 30 years. Like, at this point, I understood that Again, I didn't have memories of the events at the time. I understood that, like, if I was guilty of this, I needed to be punished. But I didn't want to die in prison. And so my public defender took that request of a plea bargain of, you know, 20 or 30 years to the public defenders and essentially got laughed out of the guy's office. And, um, yeah. That's why I went to trial. Like, I didn't want to put my sister through that. Like, I would have, like, at that point, not knowing if I had killed my parents or not, I, I, would, I would have been happy to take a plea bargain to keep my sibling from having to go through that experience of me going to trial. But that wasn't possible. Um, and the trial itself was... Every bit as much for me to learn if I was guilty of what I was accused of as it was for the 12 people on the jury to decide my guilt or innocence. And yeah, by the end of it, I was like, yeah, logically, it had to be me. Like, there's no way that I wasn't guilty. But at that point in time, trial's already going. There was really no way or even reason for me to change my plea. Like, when, when, when the prosecutor arrested, they were already wanting to sentence me to life without parole. What was I going to do? Say, yes, please go ahead, let me die in prison? I mean, <laughs> I made a lot of irrational choices in my life, but that wasn't going to be one of them. I, I don't want to die in prison. Ultimately, what was your sentence? Um, I am sentenced to... Two life without possibility of parole sentences plus 
some amount of time, um, I believe it's two years for weapons enhancement uh, because I used a knife uh, when I murdered my father. And then I believe it's another 18 months or two years, somewhere in that ballpark for the theft of $1,000. So, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's a sin thing. Like, a sin thing, I tried to offer an apology, but, again, I was, at this point, a 19-year-old, not as punk, and I hadn't yet learned what accountability actually sounds like. I hadn't yet learned what, you know, I hadn't yet learned actually how to give a proper apology. And I tried. And it didn't come out well, but, like, my attention was there. And then the judge, five minutes later, turns around and called me a monster. And I couldn't argue with her, because she was right. That point in time in my life, with the way in which I was broken, I was. Only by grace of the gods that I spent reclaimed my sanity, had reclaimed my humanity. And, yeah, when she said, I sent you to life without the possibility of parole, what I heard was, you are a bad person, and you will die in prison, and there will be no consideration for you to not die in prison because you are a bad person. And, yeah, I did very, very, very bad things. And my mental health history and my history of abuse do not excuse that in any way, shape, or form. And so, Amber, do you, do you think there should have been a another outcome? Do you think there should have been a you know specific sentence that was handed down to you? I believe that the system itself does not have the ability to do justice at this point in time in our society for anyone. Like, I do not believe that you can definitively say, you know, at the time of the trial, so shortly after the events of a person causing harm in society or harm to their family or harm to anyone, right? Like, you can't definitively say how long it's going to take or what it's going to take for an individual to recover from whatever trauma they have that caused them do those things. Like, the system, it, like, it's not, not a different sentence would have been more fair or more just if the system itself cannot do justice under the current conditions. I, I sincerely believe that, yes, I needed to be locked up for a time after that because I was not sane. I needed to be put in a place where I would not be able to cause harm to others. But I also needed to be given the means, the tools, the support to build my own sanity, to build my own humanity, and to connect with the humanity of others around me in order to become a healthy human being that's a part of a community and able to help others. And then once 
I or, you know, someone else who's being passed through the criminal justice system gets to that point, there absolutely should be a method of release. And you can't make a cold shot with that. You cannot make a cold shot with, at the time, especially with someone that young, at the time of causing harm, such as murder, like I did, you cannot call how long it'll take for that person to grow into humanity. But I also believe that it is required for us to, you know, to be a good, just society, to create that pathway, and to create a means of looking at people and saying, okay, you've grown, you've changed, you get a second chance. And we don't do that. If we can, if we could, let's talk about your transitioning while being uh, locked up and what that's been like. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but there's actually, again, uh, as always, like the context is important, right? Right, exactly. First concern is what I was talking about before, you know the reclaiming of my own sanity, the reclaiming of my own humanity, right? Because, you know, I was actually afraid for a very long time that my feelings of gender dysphoria and being transgender came from my damage, which, you know, there's, uh, you know, dissociated disorders and such that can cause this to happen, and I was afraid that due to the level of psychological damage and spiritual damage that I had, that, that that may be something that's going on. And as I mentioned before, there's very, very little support within the prison for doing that work, especially since I was in close custody at a time. Um, so I ended up, um, I don't want to say discovering Wicca, but discovering paganism as a modern thing, because that really felt like coming home for me. Um, I also, you know, discovered Zen Buddhism, but again, it's not a discovery, it was a homecoming, like, that was my path, that is my path. And thanks to those, I would say my daddy dealt with that and really came to understand myself, but I was still in close custody. And close custody is not the place to come out as trans. There, there, there is a very, very high probability of me being harmed in very, very bad ways in close custody. I don't have the ability to pass as cis male. Like, it doesn't work. The best I can pull off is a kind of drama kid, effeminate man. Right? Which, you know, of course, then gets read as a gay male. And that caused me a lot of problems. I had, I was, you know, forced into a lot of fights that I really would have preferred not to have been a part of. Partly because a part of my reaction to what I did was I actually became a pacifist for a few years, which was not good for my health, like physically, but 
it was necessary for me spiritually and psychologically. And, yeah, I got beat up a lot. Um, I never got threatened with my life. Um, there, I had a couple of cases where if I had lost that particular fight, um, I probably would have been raped. Like, I, I very much so believe I would have been, just based upon the individual that I was fighting at the time. And, you know, that all of that is just, you know, that, that like I said, fear has very much become just, it's a part of my life. I've had a lot of uh, cases. Actually, the most common cases is other inmates dropping tights to the administration claiming that I'm going to be assaulted to try and get rid of me without actually, like, engaging in intimidation or engaging in physical confrontation. So they're snitching, putting forward, especially the ones that, like, try and say that I'm engaging in some sort of sexual promiscuity or lie, right? They're telling the administration lies to get rid of me so they don't have to fight with me to try and get rid of me, right? And that's an ongoing issue, especially now that I'm in medium custody, which there was in medium custody just three years ago when I was finally able to come out as trans because... There's less violence, and there's less of that homophobia. I mean, it's still there. I still hear lots of inappropriate comments. There's still a lot of transphobia. I hear a lot of inappropriate comments along those lines as well. Um, I get a lot of unwanted sexual attention. I get, I, I get a lot of drama and stress and issues from all of that, and I definitely have to be very mindful about the way I carry myself and, like, who I allow to be close to me because of it. But, yeah, it's, uh, after eight years of close custody, medium custody is kind of nice. <laughs> it's still a cage, but at least it's not a actively dangerous cage. That, that's kind of what it boils down to for me, is, like, safety, and the perception of privacy. Because there isn't actually anything resembling privacy in prison. I mean, even the courts say there's no such thing as privacy in prison, and that's why cops can stare at you regardless of what you're doing. Which is often very, very, very creepy. If I had a magic time machine, and the only thing this time machine did was allow me to send one email to my past self, and I could tell my past self, get in your car, drive to Seattle, there are people there who will support you for who you are. That's the whole message. If I could do that, none of this would have happened. Did I, that's what I should have done with my life. Like, you know, hindsight being 2020. I should have got in my car and left. But that as a concept, that as an idea, simply did not occur to me. And I think being in prison has exposed me 
to all of that richness of humanity, all that richness of other cultures, and all that richness, because it's such a diversity of people come to prison. I mean, the majority of people who come to prison are poor, people of color, and queer, right? Like, you know, immigrants. Like, like, there's a lot of, like, that's the people that get criminalized. Our society, like, inherently does this to people. And so those are the people that I met here. And it got me out of my white, middle class, Bullshit. Like, that's that's where I was stuck at. And because, you know, in prison I've met other trans people. Because in prison I've met pagans. Because in prison I've met Buddhists. Because in prison I've gotten to be a part of an anti-racist organization. Because in prison I've gotten to, like, these are all things I would have done on the street. Had I known they existed, but I didn't, because I was white, raised in whiteness. Yeah, I, I, I think that the being in prison part, sure, facilitated me running into people like that, facilitated me learning about these things existing. But, and this is a big but, only reason why that's important with the coming to prison is because of the inherent racism of our society that creates these white islands that I didn't even know I was stuck on it. Had it not been for, you know, our settler, colonialist, racist, sexist, patriarchal, all of the things, society, I would not have needed to come to prison to learn that these things exist. I would have just known that this existed as a part of the richness of the tapestry of the community I was in. Joining us now is Dr. Shiloh from the LA Not So Confidential podcast, which full disclosure, you are our partners on the Crawl Space Network, but I myself am a big fan of the show. So thanks for coming on and doing this. Yeah, of course. It's I, I'm glad we're getting an opportunity to collaborate on something. Um, sorry, Dr. Scott couldn't be here. He's out of town and then I'm out of town next week. So this is how we had to make it work. Yeah, we'll get we'll get him sooner or later. You guys for can't sure. run forever. Um, <laughs> right. So let's just jump right into it. What are your thoughts on Amber Kim? Wow. there You definitely set me up with a doozy. Um, yeah. There's there's a lot going on here. I just kind of first impressions. Um, I thought it was a fantastic interview. I, I actually was thinking while listening to it, God, Andrew does such a good like psychosocial history interview. <laughs> Um, and, and I think the interview style that you guys have really makes people feel at ease. And of course, that's how you're going to get more information, yeah. right? So I mean, you guys have been doing that a while and it, it works and it definitely shows because in turn, that gives me more information of sort of what's presenting with Amber, what might be going on with her, um, and, you know, possibly just, maybe mental health diagnoses at the time and obviously a lot of trauma and troubling experiences that led up to that. So um, I, I think she does a good job of really sort of taking you guys through 
a lot of those obstacles. And of course, this is going to be through her lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how you guys are also able to step in between those worlds. Cause I think that's, that's what I do. I can say, okay, this is what she's saying. This is what it could be, mm. but it all could be bullshit too. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so I, I think I have a lot of sort of thoughts about her recount of what happened. Um, a lot of it is totally possible, but at the end of it, I do empathize with, you know, what a really terrible set of factors she was dealt early in life. Um, although, you know, obviously she decided to handle it the way she did. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to her early childhood and she's describing things like she was forced down and made to brush her teeth and things like that. So some people may find that traumatic and some people don't. And I've brought this up several times to people because of that, that trauma is subjective and ultimately we account for perceived trauma. Um, Do you feel that she felt like these episodes were traumatic in the sense that they um, were life changing or something that stuck with her? I love that she used that example because I think it highlights what her life was probably like at that time and what her parents were like. Um, So traumatic, if we're going to go by a very clinical definition, a traumatic incident, we really only save that for life-threatening situations. Either you're experiencing it yourself or you're witnessing it happening to someone else. So being forced, you know, to have your teeth brushed at church on the floor while being held down doesn't fit that criteria. It doesn't mean we just don't throw around that word because we do. We throw that word around all the time. And people tell me, you know, divorce is traumatic and it may be the worst thing that's happened to you, but it doesn't fit that definition necessarily of trauma. I think she had a lot of trauma type of situations that she probably felt that she was in danger as far as her physical health. And I would say that's a close second to thinking you're going to lose your life. And especially over a period of time can be complex trauma or cumulative trauma where that's building up. So that situation that she recounts in the bathroom being forced and being held down, I think is more indicative of the psychological and borderline physical abuse that was going on at the hands of her family, this this deeply religious family, as she calls them. Um, I know she also says that her perspective is that it was also sexual abuse. Right. Um, I, I found that interesting. I, I'm not going to challenge her interpretation of what it was too much, but really it doesn't fit a criteria that I would look at as a clinician saying, is there a sexual element to what has happened here? There's no intent to perform this act because of sexual arousal, Mm -hmm. nor are they, frankly, penetrating a sexual part of the body that we would then say, yeah, clearly this is a sexual thing. So that's her interpretation, and that's fine, um, but... I I wouldn't take her parents into um you know a therapy <laughs> session and be like okay I'm gonna treat you as a sex offender because that, yeah that's that would be ridiculous yeah so going forward a bit let's talk about gender dysphoria and what she exhibited in her teenage adolescent young adult life in in regards to gender dysphoria 
Yeah, uh, I I think all the hallmarks are there with gender identity issues of high rates of depression um, and sounds like probably exacerbated by her family's religious overtones and just their general views on, you know, how she should be as um, in her gender role as a boy. Um, So it, it doesn't surprise me that she talks about feeling socially awkward and being more drawn to, you know, wanting to do more feminine activities with the girls in school. And in this, she's also being um, moved around a couple of times. It's some really Mm -hmm. formative years and that, that can be its own level of um, a big obstacle to a kid, especially a kid that doesn't really know where they fit and has some sexual identity or gender identity issues going on. So, the, the withdrawal and isolation as well as the depression. And I'm sure there were, there was suicidal ideation there because we just know with um, the trans community that that's really high. Mm-hmm. And there is a correlation, some overlap between risk factors of people who are suicidal and people who are homicidal. So that does end up where she turned her acting out behavior ended up being homicidal rather than suicidal. Yeah. So touching on the murders themselves, she talks about periods that she cannot recall, like uh, going to get a gun, but she didn't know what she was going to use the gun for. And she ended up stabbing her father and choking her mother or something in that regard, or remembers driving the Bobcat or the the machinery with their bodies and just doesn't, all, all of it's kind of hazy and just parts missing. Can you tell yeah. us what what may have been going on there? So I, my mind automatically jumps to disassoci- dissociative identity disorder. And Scott and I did an episode on this. It's called multiple personality disorder is not a thing. Um, so dissociative identity disorder is a more accurate diagnosis for what we now kind of see as when people separate, if you will, from their self. And that can happen a lot of different ways. And Mm. it can happen as a result of a trauma. And clearly there is a trauma here. She caused the trauma and the death, Mm. um, but it still was a traumatic situation. And as a result of that, one, one of the hallmarks of dissociative identity disorder can be amnesia. Now that can be a few minutes of it, or it can be years for some people. So I think she says that later on she recovers some of those yeah. memories, um, which could be true. I, I do think, you know, I, I kind of started to think, okay, well, what was the triggering event here? And it seems to be that phone call with her mom where her mom mm. says it's not going to work out that you're moving out, which, you know, is a really sad situation. It sounds like she was trying to get out of that house. She was trying to line up an apartment or a trailer or something to get out and that was probably going to be what ended up saving her life and, and kind of moving on from this family. And then that gets crushed. Yeah. So she hangs up with mom, but it's interesting because it's a phone call. It's not as if this is happening in person. And then she flies into a rage and kills mom. Mm-hmm. So like you said, she talks about trying for it would seem like a really long time to get access to her dad's weapons And then he comes home and there's sort of this second trigger of an argument with him. So I think that's when 
probably the the rage ensued. Now, I don't know the exact, um, obviously, like the the way in which it happened, whether it was rage, kill, and now that I've been exposed to trauma, I'm going to dissociate, or if it was she was just more cognizant of what was going on there. But yes, I mean, it, it could happen. There's also research that supports that people with dissociative identity disorder suffered severe childhood trauma. And it could have been one of her developed defense mechanisms. There might be other periods of time in her life where she doesn't have memory. But then she ends up, like you said, hiding the gun, putting the bodies in a bobcat, and then goes to school. (laughs) So I I find it fascinating if if that really is the case. I, I, I think it's super interesting. Could it be a cover story, an easy cover story to say, I don't remember? Heck yeah, of course. Mm. There's also a lot of other like factors that come into dissociative identity disorder. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be full on amnesia. Some people talk about a depersonalization where there's sort of this sense of detachment from their self where they feel like they're on autopilot. Yeah. Um, or it really mimics kind of some of the symptoms of shock that we see sometimes. Um, there's also derealization that happens where people are more unfamiliar with things around them, maybe even people. So they feel really detached from kind of the world around them. Um, so you can see different variations of it. I guess amnesia would be what we think of as just these big blocks of time that are missing. The, and, the quote unquote blackouts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it happens and mm. you know, this one seems convenient, Yeah. <laughs> um, especially at, at, at a trial. Right. So yeah, yeah. don't give them anything that you, they can challenge, but it, it's absolutely real. And it, I think the example I gave in that when Scott and I were talking about this on our show was after one of my officer involved shootings when I was on the job. And when you do like a walkthrough with the investigators afterwards, kind of tell them what happened and um, they go, okay, so did you, did you come over here to this area to find cover with your partner? And I'm like, Nope, don't remember that. But my partner had been shot. And so there was a blood trail leading there and they're like, well, the physical evidence shows this. And I'm like, okay, we must have, you know, it just, it was one of those moments where my life was in danger um, and just little pieces for me were gone. And I believed them. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a physical evidence. Okay. But, um, you know, sometimes it can seem odd, like, oh, are you conveniently forgetting? Yeah. Pieces? So her family and her seemed like they just didn't communicate effectively it seemed like the environment and the dynamic was very dysfunctional not to say who was right or wrong about anything but it just it it seemed dysfunctional and and like they couldn't communicate well but it may stand out to me that amber may have an issue with with rage or anger and i don't know if if the murders were a culmination of keeping it in and an explosion of rage or is there anything to that extent that you see? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, obviously I'm just hearing an hour's worth of Mm -hmm. her recounting and, and without being able to ask follow-up questions and evaluate her for myself, Mm -hmm. really I'm, I'm, I'm just working with what's in front of me or with this interview and you know, as dysfunctional as the family was and the lack of communication or the 
wrong type of communication that was going on. It seems like it was very one-sided. It doesn't sound like she had a lot of social support or other outlets. And I get this feel of this very isolated existence and, Mm. and, or this hopelessness that we do see with suicidal and homicidal ideation of my life is never going to get any better when people get to that very edge and it doesn't necessarily have to be rage, but it can just be, there is no other way out of this. And I just want the psychological pain to stop. Uh, I kind I call it the fuck it stage. Like some people are just like, you know, it's not going to get any worse for me. Yeah. So I might as well take care of the problem, have a little bit of relief. And, and that's where really a lot of people's minds are at with even just suicide. You know, that technically, if you talk to suicide survivors, they don't want to die, which sounds strange. They want the psychological pain to stop. And it just mm. seems like the only option. I think very similarly for her, murdering her parents could have been the only way for the psychological torture in her eyes to stop. And an act of desperation. Right, right. Yeah. So what are your final thoughts on Amber Kim? Uh, you know, I, I think just sort of final thoughts when she's talking at the end about, you know, really needing mental health treatment, she puts it instead of life in prison. Um, I think she needed mental health treatment a long time prior to this. And she did. I mean, she, I don't know what the treatment was like, but obviously um, even from junior high, I mean, she was an inpatient treatment. That's pretty serious. And she talks about, um, she took, I think, Wellbutrin and Zyprexa. So, Wellbutrin, Wellbutrin being an antidepressant, Zyprexa being an antipsychotic. I can make some guesses as to what her diagnoses mm. were. It's really hard to even accurately diagnose someone that's still an adolescent, but there's probably a good deal of depression and maybe some psychotic symptoms there, bipolar disorder. So clearly, yes, she was in need of mental health treatment and still is and sound like she's done a lot of even work on herself, even through kind of the the religions she's decided to follow. And ultimately, she chose to do what she did. Um, and I don't think there was enough evidence to say that she was insane at the time that she committed those crimes. But I, I think she makes a really good case in talking about the lack of resources that are out there for people before it's too late. Mm. Well, Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise, and I very much appreciate it, and I hope that I can have you and Dr. Scott on again or one or the other. I mean, anything will work. Yeah, working with either one of you is absolutely a privilege, and thank you so much. Oh, of course. Thank you for asking. It was a lot of fun. So everybody go check out LA Not So Confidential, and uh, yeah, we're done for now. (laughs) 